What we're going to do right now, we're going to just jump right into Scripture. If you guys don't have Bibles, why don't you guys raise your hands? We have ushers, I think. They might be already. Yeah, they're already ready to get you guys Bibles. Uh, raise your hand. They'll get you a Bible. In fact, I'm going to have you guys do one more quick practice. We're going to just stand up again. So as soon as you grab your Bible, sorry, go ahead and stand up again. It's a way for us to show honor, respect to Scripture. Uh, I'm going to read the passage that we're going to be looking at here today. And as you guys are opening, why don't you open up to three different spots, first of which is super easy, page one, page one. Let's go to page one. Genesis chapter one is what we're going to look at. Second, you can go to the next book of the Bible. It's called Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Put your finger there as well. And then go to the New Testament, all the way to the New Testament, and to the uh, book called Mark, Mark chapter 2. So those three passages we'll read. While you guys are opening there, I'll just make a quick statement. As you guys saw that little slide for our Easter Good Friday, we have a bunch of these little flyers right here. Check that out. How magical is that? Front, back, front, back. See that? Is Easter back? Good Friday? There you go. Awesome. Um, so grab as many of these as you would like. Uh, we mentioned this a lot that um, in our culture still, people will come to church uh, on Easter. Um, maybe not come rest of the year, but on Easter and or Christmas, they will come. They will come if they're invited. So look at this. This is a really unique opportunity to take advantage of a cultural moment in which people will still come and hear about Jesus and hopefully come to know Jesus. So grab some of those flyers. If you know places that would be willing or allow for you to kind of put a little stack of flyers there, grab some and just stick them out there. You never know. Uh, God might use that to reach people. If you want to hand them out to people in your neighborhood, go ahead and do that as well. But that's what they're there for, is to just invite people that you know to come to be part of either Good Friday, which is at Friday at noon, or Easter Sunday, which we have the multiple services that you saw as well. So with that, I want to jump right in, reading the scripture. We've been in a little bit of a series that we've been called Renovation of the Heart. We've been looking at a series of practices that help us to become like Jesus. Uh, we've been saying this from the very beginning, that the end game is we want to be like Christ. But we're also looking at there's a variety of practices that followers of Jesus, that Jesus himself followed, that followers of Jesus and scripture followed, and that 2,000 years of church history, Christians have followed. Uh, for many of us, we, we don't follow because we just, we don't, we don't know about them. Um, and what we're inviting you to consider is to look at how they play into scripture, how they play into the formation of our walk with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and then the invitation is to actually begin to do these things. Uh, to begin to look for ways in our lives where we can begin to adopt or live into some of these practices. Again, the end game is not to just simply create busy work or to just simply do stuff, but so that we would become like Jesus. But that in that process of becoming like Jesus, we adopt these practices. Again, things like scripture reading, fasting, gathering together as a church family like you guys are doing on Sunday morning. So you guys are already doing that. Good job. Sunday morning, gathering, worship, service, uh, praising, worshiping God. It's already part of it. Today we're going to be looking at the subject or the practice of what we're going to just simply look at as Sabbath. It's an important concept that plays into the entirety of the Bible, from Genesis 1 all the way throughout the entire scope of Scripture. So hopefully we'll make this very practical today as we look at the subject of Sabbath and how this plays into it. So with that being said, I'm going to read the passage, and then we will begin to get to work looking at this. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 is what we'll look at, and then verse 31, and then we'll skip down to Genesis chapter 2, and then the Exodus and the Mark. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, verse 31, 
And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, and that was the sixth day. Skip on down to chapter 2, verse 2. It says, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And then he rested from all of his work that he had done. Verse 3, and then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 2, and then verses 8 through 11. And God spoke to all these, all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Six days you will labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, sojourner, who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven, the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. And then on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Skip on down to chapter Mar- or the book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 27. Jesus speaks these words. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the gift that you've given us of yourself. God, that you've come into this world that's broken, that's stuck, that's enslaved, and you've broken these bondages that we have, these enslavements that we find ourselves stuck in. And God, we ask you this morning that you would just open our hearts to see the depth of your love and in response to turn to you with the sum total of everything that we are and that we have. And so God, we just devote this morning in your hands and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Why don't you guys all grab a seat? So I was thinking about this in just preparing for this. I've, over the past uh, couple years, I've read a couple books, a handful of books, I should say, on the subject of Sabbath. And uh, just in preparing for this, kind of fine-tuning my thinking in terms of what this practice is all about, um, I've become more and more aware of the fact that, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, we live in a culture that defines itself, that is, in, by way of its identity, is an extremely restless culture. I'd written this down and was thinking about this, that we live in this restless culture which oscillates between, on the one hand, the soul-devouring, soul-sucking uh, existence of anxiety producing work, and then all the way on this other end uh, to this other thing we just simply call a day off, which really kind of, for the most part, oftentimes can just be a, a, amount to nothing more than sort of like a self-focused time of just hanging out, binge-watching something on Netflix, or having a beer, or doing yard work, or taking care of other things that you're not able to do in the midst of your extremely busy day. So in other words, it just becomes a work day, another form of a work day, but a work day that you just simply do the stuff that you're not able to do because you're working you know, 7 o'clock to 7 o'clock or whatever type of work schedule you have, whether it be work schedule, school schedule, whatever the case is. And, and that day off, quote-unquote day off, does not really do any type of soul-replenishing work for us. And as I was thinking about this, that we live in this culture that's always on, always connected, 
always producing, that we basically have this mantra, blessed are the multitaskers for they get things done. Is that not our society? Right? I mean, it's, it, it's this culture that on the one hand, there's certain like taboos, even moral taboos, that if you do, you'll be blackballed, you'll be hated. You know, if you're you know, child sex trafficker, that's, that's the worst of the worst. If you're a pedophile, it's the worst of the worst. All right, if you take advantage of women or men or whatever the case is, it's the worst of the worst. Uh, if you steal something, uh, it's, it's not as bad as that, but it would, it's definitely, that, that'll throw you on the outs with regard to your relational, uh, horizontal relationships and whatnot. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you are an overworker, overachiever, it's very likely that that is not in any way, shape, or form cursed, but you'll actually get a raise for that. Right? Is that not the culture that we live in? Your boss will be like, I'm so proud of you. You're working 25 hours a day. Good job. <laughs> and I'm going to give you a raise for that. You're going to get promotion because of that. And, and in some sense, this idea of workaholism actually gets rewarded. Right? And as you think about this, that the pressures that we live under in this performance, image management slash perfection, uh, having to always be present around this constant urgency. Uh, at this, the end result of all of this is this anxiety and security and ultimately exhaustion. That's what it all leads to. And really, our attempts to repair or to try to bring some sense of humanity back into our lives, um, like I said, either amounts to what we would just describe as a quote-unquote day off or some degree of self-medicating which ultimately leads to a whole nother form of problems, aka addictions. So uh, because our anxieties and our exhaustion never goes away, it's this constant ongoing cycle, we're always medicating, which then leads to new habits and patterns, which is otherwise known as addictions. And now we feel crappy because we're stuck in these addictions. Now we've got guilt and shame to add to our addictions, to add to our anxiety. Hello, how are we all doing? This is the world that we live in, right? And so as we go on down this path, then this leads to depression, antidepressants. I mean, America is like the number one prescribing antidepressant nation on this planet. So the point that I'd make is that th this is a problem that we live in. And all sorts of sociologists and people who study this stuff are just constantly coming back to the reality. This is a cycle. We, we don't know how to break out of this. We don't know what to do. And this is where the question comes in that we've been doing every single week to kind of segues into the practice. So is there a practice which addresses our enslavement to the oppressive system? Because that's exactly what it is. It's this oppressive system. And it's not just a system, but it's an oppressive system uh, that addresses this enslavement to this oppressive system of production, which then leads to accumulation, which then leads to exhaustion, which then leads to self-medication, and then repeat, right? And that reorients us back to God, restoring and renewing our hearts. And the answer to that is a resounding yes. This is God's gift that he gives to us that for, for many of us, we may have never really thought about. And for others of us, we may have actually just thought that this is just like Old Testament. This is something that Christians are not to even think about or to consider or to practice because Sabbath, after all, isn't that like OT? stuff that we should not even begin to consider or think about. And maybe for some of you, you've been involved in maybe some form of a church 
uh, matrix that has kind of used an idea of Sabbath, like say, for example, not saying that Seventh-day Adventists would necessarily do that, but they are known for their Sabbath-keeping type of um, uh, format. But the point that I would make is that for some, they have come from a perspective that has sort of used the Sabbath as a means or a measuring stick of who's in, who's out, who's righteous, who's not righteous, who's accepted or acceptable, and who's not accepted and acceptable. So with that, what I want to do right now is I want, to, I want to momentarily just kind of geek out with you guys for just a brief moment. And what I want to do is I'm going to look at what's commonly known as uh, covenant theology or a theology of covenant, another way to think about this. I want to read a passage to you. We'll take a look at this slide. Oh, before we get to that, um, just by way of a definition. So the practice of Sabbath enters us into God's rhythm of work and rest demonstrating that we are not slaves to the systems of production, performance, and or accumulation, but we are indeed truly sons and daughters of God. Like, that's what Sabbath does. That's what Sabbath has always been about throughout uh, the Bible, is this story that you have dual citizenship. Yes, you might be a citizen of this system that Pharaoh or the king of Babylon or the kings of this empire of this world have created and catered and cultivated, but simultaneously you are freed from that and your ultimate allegiance, your ultimate loyalty is to, to Jesus. And so with that, what I want to do right now is I want to like circle back, I want to look at kind of this covenant theology, I want to read a passage to you because I think it's, a, or the uh, theology of covenant or covenantal theology, so, sorry, we'll go back to that passage. There we go. Scripture. There we go. Covenant theology of covenant. So what I want to do right now is I want to just pause and think about this. I think it's important because, uh, again, I, I want to make sure that we get this right. That when we talk about the New Testament or the New Covenant versus, say, an Old Covenant, what we're talking about is that the way by which we are made right with God. It's not by Sabbath keeping. It's not by doing any other spiritual practice, whatever the case it might be. It's ultimately about Jesus. And it's basically how Paul words this. Listen to what he says in the book of Colossians, chapter 2, verse 16. He says this, uh, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival, festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So there we go. Paul is addressing a group of Christians that live in a very paganistic society. Some of them are looking at a form of asceticism and saying that if we do X, Y, and Z, or we follow a particular practice, then we will be the acceptable ones. Those who don't practice these things obviously are on the outside. And what Paul is basically saying, no, that's, that's a complete reorientation of, of truth. Um, what Jesus has come to do, aside from you know, dismantling the powers and the forces and the spiritual you know, powers that are constantly at bay, destroying and trying to distort what God is up to in this world. He's also come to basically say the way that we are made right with God is through Jesus alone. Like he literally is the way by which we are made right. It's not by keeping a Sabbath. It's not by doing certain spiritual practices. And it's not by fasting. Um, what he goes on to say in this particular passage, verse 17, he says, these are just the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by their sense, sense, uh, sensuous mind. And then he goes on to say, uh, and not holding fast to the head, Christ. So again, what Paul wants us to understand is that ultimately at the end of the day, Christianity is about Jesus, right? It seems to make sense. It's not about keeping Sabbath. It's not about... So then the question rises... 
then, then what place do these things play? What place does the law of God or the Ten Commandments play in the life of a Christian? And that's an important question, and I don't have a whole lot of time to kind of unpack a lot of it because that, that can spend, we can spend a lot of time unpacking it and thinking about it. That, but in short, if you think of it this way, uh, there are certain things, for example, like in what's called the Decalogue, it's otherwise known as the Ten Commandments, that we still abide by. So for example, thou shalt not murder. N nobody looks at that and says, well, that's Old Testament. We can murder it out. It's all cool. Like, that's Old Testament. Nobody says that. Everyone would uh, agree with the fact that, that, is, that the principle of that is still to be carried out. In fact, even Jesus goes on so far to even say that even if you harbor anger or bitterness or a dehumanizing, demonizing mentality in your heart towards other people, you better be careful because you are in danger of murdering that person, right? By way of the tone that you are conducting within your own heart. So his whole point is like, be careful. Murder is still a very real thing. So uh, again, like I said, when it comes to some of these things within the Old Testament, we would look at and say, it's, God's not just simply giving a pass, but what we would say as followers of Jesus, people that have been swept into what we would call the new covenant, is that at the end of the day, <laughs> that the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue or the Old Testament law is not what holds ultimate sway over our hearts. Jesus does. He is our ultimate loyalty. So the thing that we look at is we say, what does Jesus do? What does Jesus invite us into? What and how did Jesus live? That's, and those are the type of people we want to become. So Jesus, we see, obviously, throughout the New Testament, actually keeps the Sabbath. I mean, he has his own ways and he runs into conflict with others of the pharisaical tradition, religious tradition, that did not like the way that Jesus kept the Sabbath, but Jesus, nonetheless, kept Sabbath. It was a part of something that Jesus kept by way of a respect to the tradition which he had been born and lived in and continued on. And, and what I want to look at this morning is really just kind of the bigger idea behind the principle as to why Sabbath was a thing and how and why God would invite us into this. Now, again, one final thing I want to say is Sabbath does not necessarily mean that we keep the exact same day. Again, this is where we get into some of the principles because within church history, the Sabbath actually kind of became shifted. In fact, some would even argue that within the world of biblical theology, that the idea of keeping a Lord's day or a Sabbath shifted in the New Testament from a Saturday or sundown Friday to a sundown Saturday night to, to the day of Sunday, the Lord's day. Why was it called the Lord's day? Because that was the day which Jesus rose again from the dead. So many believe that Christians, followers of Jesus, began to keep the Sabbath no longer on a Saturday, but now on a Sunday to remember. And all throughout Christian history, Christians had kept the Sunday. Uh, if you want to even get even further into this, why do we have a two-day weekend, Saturday and Sunday? Well, because at some point in, I don't know, the formation of the whole thing we know as, as the weekend, that somebody said, well, we want to honor and respect both Jews and Christians. They were the predominant people within that culture uh, who have a moment of pause and reflection on Saturday, so we'll give them Saturday, and Christians who do this on Sunday, so we'll give them Sunday, hence your weekend. So this is the idea. So with that, before, uh, as we go on, I want to look at kind of the principles that Sabbath are all about. But before that, I want to just do that by way of looking at the passages in the scripture that we had read. So let's ask the question, like we've been doing, what do these passages teach us, or what these passages teach us about whatever? So first of all, what we notice is that first and foremost, is that humanity was created on day six, and day seven, God brought this humanity 
and creation into rest. Think about this. This is kind of cool that God creates human beings, uh, male and female, on the sixth day. They have a, a day of doing whatever it is that they did, you know, work, whatever. But then on the seventh day, so like a 24-hour period, they work, and then right after that, God brings them into rest. How cool is that? We have a God that actually created. God is the one that actually created the weekend. What a great God we have, that he actually creates human beings, and then he brings them immediately into a status or place of rest. The second thing we notice is that on day seven, that God himself rested, and he made this day holy. So listen to this, how this plays out. It's kind of an interesting thing to consider. On the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and then he rested. So again, this kind of raises all sorts of questions that, that sometimes people ask, well, was God tired? No, the answer is no. God was not tired. God does not get tired. Doesn't, but the fact is, is that whatever reason, God sets into motion this rhythm. Work six days, seventh day, rest. Now, one other final thing to consider with regard to this is that this was written within the context of all sorts of false religious systems and false narratives that other pagan-type religious people followed. And they had gods, and they had creation stories. And the gods and the creation stories that they had were gods that were constantly, feverishly working, doing stuff. Now, when the Jewish God is a, is a God that's not constantly, feverishly doing stuff and then bringing humanity into the feverish pace of that same existence. But we have a God that works hard and does good things and then rests and invites humanity into that rest. This is really, this has never happened in the history of humanity up until this point that we get this vision of a God. That's not feverish. That's not constantly frantic. But rather, this is a God that rests. And then shares that rest as a gift to human beings who bear his image. This is really profound. And then it goes on to say that God actually makes this day holy. So what does that mean? If you think of it this way, what is a day? A day is not something tangible, right? A day is a period of time. So actually, within the Bible, you have things that are physical, that God says this is holy. Can you guys think of some things that God says, here's a physical element that God says this is holy. Anybody? Give me some examples. Physical things that God says this is holy. So maybe, first of all, what, what is holy? The word holy basically can mean something that's set apart for God's purposes, God's reasons, God's intentions. In other words, it belongs to God or belongs to God's purposes. What are some physical, tangible things that throughout the Bible God would say this is a holy thing? Anybody? Temple, that's good. Ark of the Covenant, right? What else? Anybody? Body, yeah, yeah. Bodies, people, human, human beings, right? They can be, but they also can be unholy because if they, they have, they have the, the choice to choose between following God, which is to step into the holy purposes that God has, to walk in agreement with this God, or to disregard this God, to continue in their own ways. We see that even with, with Adam and Eve, right? So the point that I would make is that you have tangible things that are declared by God as holy, and then you have intangible things. In this context, you have, you have time. Time, this intangible period of time that God says, this is set apart for me for this distinct purpose, to enter into something known as rest. So with that being said, what I want to look at is the third thing, is that Sabbath was a gift to those who had been enslaved by the oppressive yoke of Pharaoh's backbreaking system of brick production. So it's kind of a mouthy word, 
or a phrase, but just listen to this. So again, in the context of the book of Exodus, because that's what this is referring to now is the Exodus passage, uh, when the children of Israel, God actually references that, I'm the God that brought you up out of Egypt. Now again, that's filled with hyperlinks. We've kind of given these analogies before that, that when the children of Israel would have read that, they would have immediately known that that's our story. We were a community of people that were enslaved by a cruel taskmaster, a cruel, oppressive tyrant that was breaking our backs, that was grinding our hands, grinding our humanity into just uh, just destruction. And yet, we're told that they cry out to God. God raises up Moses, if you're familiar with the story. God then delivers them from the tyranny of Pharaoh, who by the end of the story, you, you, you come to find out that that Pharaoh actually ups the production of bricks, right? Remember that whole thing where Pharaoh actually gets mad? He's like, look, we're not going to provide bricks for you Jewish people anymore. You have to actually go out and make your own bricks. And then on top of making the bricks, increasing the quota of bricks, you also have to continue to maintain the same status and degree of production. And so they're literally being destroyed and ruined to a sense of subhuman existence. What's the very first thing that God gives the people of Israel when he frees them? A gift of rest. No other God does this. Some have identified or described this as, as God's uh, counter commands to Pharaoh's commands. Pharaoh's command is brick production, more brick production, keep working, keep slaving, keep production levels high. God's new command, God's counter command says, take a rest. I purchased you. You belong to me. I love you. Enter into something that Pharaoh could never give you, never provide for you. Want to know why Pharaoh could never provide rest? One reason. He himself was a restless soul. That's what happens when you rule the world. Like Pharaoh, that's what Pharaohs do. They rule the world. means that the entirety of their world is 100% dependent upon their production, their productivity, their ability to control and rule and acquiesce and do all of this. So therefore, when you are the sole agent in charge of the entirety of your life and of your kingdom, who's going to take a break? You can't. The kingdom collapses. But Yahweh? Totally different. Yahweh says, I rule all creation. And those whom I purchase from the soul-crushing, back-breaking, production, accumulation, reality of Pharaoh, I give the gift of rest. You see this as a gift? This is how good God is. He loves his people, and he gives them something that they did not earn, something that they did not have, something that they absolutely need. And then finally, we see that Jesus actually 100% reaffirms everything in the Torah. So Jesus comes on the scene He's not basically breaking ranks from the Bible and saying, I'm going to create my own entire new thing. He actually lives in the story of the Bible, and he reaffirms all that's good. What he does do from time to time, he does get in trouble with the religious leaders. Now, again, sometimes there's two stories that come to my mind with regard to the life of Jesus. So on one hand, Jesus is walking through a grain field. If you remember that, his disciples are with him. They're hungry, so they take grain. So many of us probably have no clue on what, what grain fields are, because I didn't, and maybe, maybe you're like me. But what you would do is you'd walk through these grain fields. You would take the heads of the grain, and you would kind of go like this in your hand. And in your hand, you would have like these little like wheat berries, right? I think it was what they called them. And by doing this, you're basically separating the, the chaff 
right, the, the dry, nasty stuff that you don't want to eat, from the actual berries, and you put the berries in your mouth. Do you know that, by the way, that when you chew on wheat berries, guess what happens? It becomes gum. It actually becomes like gum substance. And so uh, what happens is Jesus' disciples are actually doing this on, on a Sabbath day, and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, get really angry. They rebuke Jesus, and they're like, why are you letting your people eat and, you know, basically do this harvesting, which is they look at this as harvesting on the Sabbath, and Jesus basically gives a story about David. Don't you know that David, when he was hungry, he ate the, the, the showbread, the, the bread that was sacred and holy. He ate it when he was hungry. It was on the Sabbath. And then another story is, comes to my mind is Jesus was doing healings on Sabbath. He was uh, rehumanizing people, so people that were basically um, enslaved by sickness or disease or restlessness as a result of these things. Jesus comes up to them, and he heals them. And so the religious leaders, again, they get really angry with Jesus because he's telling them, hey, take up your bed and walk. And they had these prohibitions against that. Now, before you get too upset and angry with the uh, religious leaders, you've got to understand, I think sometimes the religious leaders and the Pharisees in particular get a bad rap. They're kind of viewed as like the bad guys in the Bible. But do you realize that actually the Pharisees were attempting to be the good guys? They, they knew, again, if you know the story of the Old Testament, that one of the reasons why the Jewish nation went into exile in Babylon is because they did not keep what? They didn't keep Sabbath. And so these Pharisees, what are they trying to do? They are literally on over alert to make certain that God's people keep Sabbath. Why? Because they want to live in obedience. They don't want to be enslaved in a new form of oppression. They are literally looking out for the good, in a sense. But what's happened through that is they drift. And as a result of the drift from that, they became overly focused upon the actual doing of it, and they failed to realize the main heart, the principle behind what the Sabbath is all about, which if you want to put it in the context of what Jesus was addressing, Sabbath is about food and restoration of human reality. Now we begin to get this picture. Wow, Sabbath, it sounds awesome. So let's get into a couple quick things, and we'll wrap this up. Let's look at what kind of Sabbath is. And this is sort of a compilation of some of the books I'd read and kind of brought together. So Sabbath, we'll look at each of these five of them, and I'll give you a freebie one at the end. So Sabbath number one is rest. Sabbath is, or Sabbath as rest. It's a form of rest. It's a form of entering into a pausing. It's work stoppage, as one author described it as. It's a way of kind of pulling away from, unplugging, stopping, not doing certain things. We'll get into some practicals in just a moment. But first and foremost, it's rest. It's entering into rest that God has provided. Secondly, it's rhythmic. It's a rhythm. Uh, it's the six days and one. It's this rhythm. It's, it's not just once every blue moon. It's not just once whenever you feel it. The idea behind it is that it's rhythmic. The idea is that every week you create space, create time to have this moment of rest. Thirdly, we see that it's resistance. And again, as one scholar kind of worded it and described it, that we live in a society which is addicted. Um, and it's really two drugs of choice, our accomplishment and accumulation. And so the form of resistance that Sabbath brings in, it basically says, I will not be a slave to accomplishment, my accomplishments, and my form of accumulation. Did you hear that? It's a form of resistance. It's a form of saying, at the end of the day, the one who gives me a sense of dignity, value, respect, is not what I do or what I produce. 
it's God who loves me. In accumulation, like, we, we need stuff to survive, right? St. Louis has some of the highest rents in the entire nation. It's ridiculous to be able to live here. It's really, really hard. I get it. But the fact of the matter is, at the end of the day, we can find ourselves simply eking out this existence, working overtime, working constantly, working several jobs for one aim in total. It's just to simply have to, to accumulate stuff, to accumulate even you know, stuff might just simply be rent check. But then, again, we live in this culture that's constantly telling us, telling me to consume, to buy, that when you buy this new you know, pair of shoes or buy this thing, whatever, it's going to make you feel better about yourself, you're going to be a better person, you're going to be whatever the case is. And at the end of the day, these are all forms of the narrative in the culture that we imbibe, we follow, we live, we let it shape us, we subject ourselves to it. And what Sabbath does is says, I'm going to unplug from that narrative because it's toxic. My identity is a gift from God who loves me. And my ability to accumulate goods, it's not helping me. And I have a father who loves me and will take care of me. He will give me every single thing that I need. And to demonstrate that, I will back off from that production line and trust the one who loves me and gave himself for me. So fourthly, we see that's rehumanizing. What I mean by that is it takes us out of that system of production and accumulation, and then it rehumanizes me. It re-censors me to cause me to realize I am a child of God. In fact, let's all say that right now. I am a child of God. You are not what you produce. You are not what you accumulate. You are not what you wear. You are not what you desire. You are a child of God. If you are in Christ, if you love Jesus, if you've been given your heart and your loyalties over to him, God says you belong to me, and I love you, and I will take care of you. Everything you need, I will be responsive to that. This is the God that we have. And then finally, uh, recreation. You know, we get to use the word recreation. I was going to say recreation, but I'm going to use the word and kind of put the hyphen in between it. Recreation. That's what recreation is. Or at least as it was intended to recreate. It's a way of entering into new creation that Jesus initiated, that he began. There's an author by the name of Marva Dawn. I'm going to read a quote by her. Maybe they can find that real quick. Marva Dawn's great quote. She says this in her book, Keeping the Sabbath, that a great benefit of keeping the Sabbath is that we learn to let God take care of us, not by becoming passive and lazy, but in the freedom of giving up our feeble attempts to be God in our own lives. It's a great quote. She describes Sabbath as these four kind of movements or four things that we enter into. Number one, ceasing, resting, embracing, feasting. Ceasing, ceasing from our endless labor, ceasing from that production system of uh, create, creation and accumulation and so on and so forth, but to cease from that, to unplug from that, to stop allowing that to control me, and then secondly, resting, to actually enter into what God has provided for me by way of rest, and then embracing, embracing the good that God says, here's what I will offer, here's how I will provide for you, and then feasting, 
eating. Now, this is a beautiful thing because this is actually looking forward to what God says the kingdom, of, the kingdom to come will look like. It will look like feasting. It will look like that. So when we enter into Sabbath today, when we take a weekly rhythmic approach to this thing, what we're basically saying with our lives is I am not owned by Pharaoh and his system. I've been purchased by God who loves me, who gave himself for me. And the future that I have is one of feasting and celebration. I'm going to borrow from that future reality and bring it into my very present moment today. That's what the whole idea of Sabbath is all about. So here's some practicals, and I'll wrap it up. Number one, practicals. So three things to consider. Number one, just set aside time. 24-hour period is kind of the idea. So again, for some of us, it feels absolutely like burdensome. Again, the idea behind Sabbath is that it's not to be a burden. The whole intent is that it would be life-giving. So if that feels absolutely overwhelming to you, again, think of this as a muscle. Again, we live in a world which I realize, I get it, many of us are addicted to productivity, uh, and it's like twin, as I was described earlier, accumulation. In order for us to accumulate junk and stuff and goods, uh, valuable things, we have to work, which puts us back in that production line. Get the idea? And I, re I realized to actually to unplug from things might feel absolutely overwhelming. For so, so for some of us, it's like this muscle that we've got to exercise. Um, maybe for some of us, it's just about like saying, I'm going to take six days or six hours off uh, throughout uh, a day, uh, throughout the week, and, and, or in this time, or 12 hours, I'm just going to go half day, and really be very, very intentional about that time frame. I'm going to unplug. Uh, let me ask you out of, out of curiosity, when was the last time you actually put your phone down? and not looked at it when it pinged you. You, you realize, I mean, I'm not, no judgment here, that's an addiction. All right, I'm, I'm the same way. I get in the same place. You know, something pings me, and I'm like, i got to look at it. I've actually tried to test myself. Like, have I ever, can, can I actually, when I get a text, like, like, restrain myself from actually looking at it? All I'm trying to suggest is that this becomes my, my oppressive master. I don't want this little electrical device to be what owns my soul. I want Jesus, who loves me, who gave himself for me, to be the master over my entire destiny, my soul, my future, my present, my past. Because he loves me, he gives himself for me. And at the end of the day, think of it this way, of being able to create, carve out some space to enter into that. And then over time, like build on that. Maybe, again, like I said, go six hours, maybe build it up to ten hours next time. And just keep building it out until maybe you can get to the place of 24-hour period. Uh, again, I'll just be very uh, candid that this has been something that we've been trying to do within even our own family. And we've kind of been on this uh, fairly lengthy process of trying to actually get this well oiled within our family. And there's certain practices that we're trying to attempt and create and carve out. And, uh, you know, as a family, I would say, uh, a unified way, it's, it hasn't been going awesome. Let's just put it that way. Um, on a personal level, I feel like for me as a personal as, as a person being able to enter, and it's a little bit easier for me as a person, my big aim is to try to create this as a family type of a thing, and, and we're working towards that. But again, you give yourself grace. Uh, again, the idea is that I, I don't, we don't do this to earn God's favor, but because we have God's favor, because we have God's love that's been set upon us, this is a way to unplug from the systems that I'm constantly feeding off in this world of production and accumulation, and to be able to pull away and to say, I belong not to this system, my allegiance is not to the system. It's to the one who loves me and gave himself for me. So, number one, set some time aside. One thing I'll also kind of try to address is that what, how, how do you respond to say someone that 
Um, maybe they work several jobs. Uh, or they've got kids, multiple kids, you know, and it's just, it feels like every time we try to stop, it's just, it's nonstop chaos. Um, again, these are, I get, I get it, these are challenges to work out, to think, of, think through carefully, um, but do think through them. Do work them into your understanding and uh, your approach to how to create these good rhythms within your lives. Uh, secondly, do restful activities. Eat, walks, picnics, nap, family time, play games with the kids. Uh, you can think of these ways, hanging out with roommates, whatever. Again, if you live within a context of, say, you're all Christian roommates, and you can create some space. Uh, again, what day would be the best? These are some other questions that might be asked. Um, again, I don't, I don't think that there's any specific day that we have to settle on. For me, Sunday is not a day of rest for me. It's a work day for me. I'm like working most of the day. I'm up very, very, very early in the morning, and I do this, I go home, I take a nap, and then I typically do some other stuff. But the point that I would make is that Sundays is not my day of rest. I typically make my day of rest like a Monday. So usually I, in my mind, at around sundown, Sunday night, unless we have a night of worship, which is, again, another little bit of an extension of my day, we will have a time where, in my mind, I'm, I'm entering into this moment of rest. On the day of Monday, I'll kind of be very intentional, I'll go on a nice walk or a hike or I'll listen to an audio book or I'll read, I'll take a nice long nap, more longer than what I normally would take. Um, but the point that I would make is that these are just, these are ways, I, you know, we have a meal, hang out with the family, do stuff with my wife. The, these are ways in which uh, I, I enter into the goodness of God and his restoration. Okay, so then thirdly, um, something, something to refrain from. Refrain from doing certain things, like emails, or checking your phone, or doing a to-do list. Uh, again, uh, I, I, the, the challenge for many of us is like, well, then how is this stuff going to get done if I don't create the time to do this? That's the, the, the point, is it's a way of saying, God is the one who's going to take care of me. And on this day of rest, of Sabbath, I will trust Yahweh to be the one who loves me, and who will take care of these things. And again, I realize, this, again, there's no guilt or shame that if this seems absolutely beyond your ability to actually enter into. But again, look at it as something that was part of the storyline of the Bible. Jesus had done. His early followers had done. And Christians for the past 2,000 years have had some degree of Sabbath. We are a culture in a society that has lost sight of this. Perhaps that is the very reason why we've lost sight of our identity who we are, where we're constantly stressed and freaking out and filled with anxiety, and why we find ourselves constantly in need of having to narcoticize and to self-medicate. That maybe because we have completely omitted this practice, this rhythm of work really hard, and then rest, which one final thing I would say is that rest is not the same thing as laziness. And one other thing I would say as well, rest Sabbath is not the same thing as a day off. Because like I said earlier, we can have a day off, and the whole point of the day off is just simply, simply about me, where Sabbath is not just about me, it's about entering into what God has and being grateful and being thankful for all the stuff that God has also given me. So it involves this idea of refraining from certain things. So lastly, what I want to look at is some benefits, and I'm done. What are some benefits of Sabbath? Number one, your closest relationships with God, family, spouse, these are all cultivated. So when we create time to do this, what we're actually doing, think of it this way, is you are investing in the most important relationships 
in your life? What are those, by the way, right now? Think about it. What are the most important, most significant relationships in your life right now and how cultivated they are? Because, by the way, good relationships don't just, don't just happen. You can have some mindset that says, I really, really, really want a great marriage. I really, really want a great relationship with God. But then if I were to ask you, tell me a little bit about your program or plan of cultivating that. And you're like, I never have time to read. I never have time to actually cultivate that. I never spend any time with my spouse. Then, then I will suggest that, that you, there's really no cultivation going on. Your relational landscape will look like a big garden of weeds because there's no cultivation happening. And this is an invitation not to feel judgment or to feel condemned or to allow shame to overtake you. It's one of the things that we, we like to say often. There's no place for shame here. This, that's, the, shame is not allowed, if you can put it that way. This is not how God works. What God does, he invites us to consider what a better life by following him looks like. And this is one of the ways that by Sabbathing, we enter into a deeper, closer, more cultivated form of relationship. Secondly, is we have freedom from our addictions and our enslavement to business, production, accumulation, hurry, so on and so forth. So again, don't, don't forget the fact that many of these things, these are addictions. Why are we constantly busy? Because maybe, maybe we are addicted to the need of being needed. Maybe we are addicted to the sense of, like, I need to constantly be creating something or making something. Or maybe it's the accolades that go along with that, or the praise, the honor that come from other people, the slapping you on the backs, and you're an amazing human being. So we're addicted to that. This is a way of backing off from that and saying, I don't want that addiction. I don't want to be enslaved to that. That's a pharaoh. That's oppressive. I want to be ultimately a slave, like Paul would say, to, to Christ, who loved me, who gave himself for me. Thirdly, it acknowledges our human limits, and our, ultimately our need for dependence upon God. This is a really, really important one, because for many of us, we don't realize the fact that we have limits. We just keep going through life as if we are super beings, that we can do anything we want. I think maybe in some ways we're enculturated by the endless flow of hero movies that are constantly hitting the big screen, right? Constantly reminding us, you can do anything you want because you are an American, Right? You're amazing, or whatever. And the mentality is, is that you're right, I can do anything. And then we go out and we realize, no, you can't. I mean, I hate to break this to you. You cannot do everything. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. You are not endless in your power and your abilities. You have limits. One of the greatest forms of freedom comes when you can actually embrace that. Stop. I mean, honestly, the whole idea that you can be a hero, that is a gospel. And it's one that will enslave you to this endless reality of perfection and of image management. And it will destroy you and crush you. The gospel comes and says, you're weak, you're broken, you're messed up, you have limits. But that's okay because God loves you nonetheless. To embrace that is to embrace life. And that's what this does. Fourthly, it develops healthy rhythms in our life. Fifthly, trust and delight in God who gives himself to us, who is our life, who is our freedom, who ultimately is our rest. Jesus, in speaking to followers around him and to his culture and generation that were uh, suffering under the yoke of enslavement, um, and military occupation by Rome, 
He says to them, come to me, all of you who labor. Now, these are people that are working hard labor, not behind a desk, not doing coding, not playing World of Warcraft or Fortnite. These are people that are literally enslaved by Roman occupation. They have back-breaking existence. And he says to them, come to me. All you labor, you're heavy laden, you're filled with anxiety, you're stressed, you're having breakdowns. Come to me, and I'll give you rest. Sabbath is a reminder of who our true Savior is. It's not us. It's not our intuition. It's not our creativity. It's not our innovation. It's Jesus. How about we all stand? And I want for us now as we go to response, as we come to the table, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, as we pray, as we worship, as we lift our voices to God. My hope and prayer this morning would be that you would see the hand of God extended to you, not out of saying, do this, do that, follow this, but as a hand that extends to you and says, just come to me, come to me and you'll find rest. Come to me and I'll restore your dignity, your life, your breath, your value. The story of the gospel is that life is ultimately found not in our good works or what we do or what we produce or what we accumulate, but in Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us right now, and I, I just want to invite you to respond to this God. So as I pray, how about we just do a practice? Why don't we just lift up our hand as an act of just saying, Jesus, we need you. You can lift up your hands or hand or whatever. I guess we don't all look like a cult. You can do it your own, all right? As just a way of saying, Jesus, we need you, we love you, and we invite you into this place and into my heart. Let me pray, and we'll respond. Jesus, thank you for your great love. We receive you this morning. We receive your grace, your kindness, your gift of rest. As we come to you, as we sing, as we respond, remind us of who we are, sons and daughters of God, in Christ, because of what you've done for us. That's why we we declare here this morning, God, our ultimate, final, greatest loyalty is not to a system of production and accumulation, is not to spiritual powers and forces that dehumanize and reduce us to mere existence. But our ultimate loyalty is to the king who left the throne, entered our world, died, rose again, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That is the one to whom we swear and devote our loyalty. worship.